podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Ender. Now then, I've come up with a brand new game which uh, could well sweep the world. It could be the new X Factor for all we know. Um, it's called Snooker Player Bingo. And what I did was I wrote down 20 snooker players, past and present. I lotted them all a number from 1 to 20. I gathered Phil Yates and Neil Folds and indeed Alan McManus because Alan sort of stumbled into it not knowing what we were doing and I invited him to take part. Basically, they, they named a number and then corresponded to the player and we just had stories and anecdotes about that player. It's a very simple concept and I think it goes pretty well. We had a lot of fun doing it and hopefully you'll have a lot of fun listening to it. OK, Neil, you can go first. Pick a number. 14. Number 14... Straight away, it's a contemporary, Danny Fowler. <laughs> Danny Fowler, Dustbin Danny. Uh, I played him, actually. Uh, a few, he was a bit of a bogey player for me. Um, I played him in the UK Championship qualifiers in my second season as a professional. Uh, and, as I say, as an amateur, he'd, he'd beat me a couple of times. And we uh, I played at Stockport in the little Masters Club in there. Uh, and at the interval, I was 5-3 up, first to nine, obviously, UK. Um, as it was then and then the referee was a guy called Nobby Clark he decided that I was late for the evening session he thought it was a 7 o'clock start even though it was 7.30 and this argument went on I docked two frames Um, it took about an hour to get the frames I didn't think we started with this acrimony I thought this was going to be like a friendly chat my dad actually had to phone (laughs) up the the WSA office clearly nobody was there that time of night uh, and in the end, I got my frames back, but lost the match. Wow. And afterwards, they actually said to me, the WSA said wrongly, they said to me, you can have the match replayed if you want, but of course, it, the moment had gone. So right. that's my memory of Danny Fowler. D- dustbin Danny, I mean, he was a dustman. Well, he was, and I remember on one occasion, he beat Martin Clark in the UK Championship, and the headline in the local paper, the Expressing Star, was uh, Dustbin Danny dumps dismal Clark. <laughs> <laughs> Which was alliteration take, yeah, taken yeah. to the extreme. Yeah. Two things I remember about Fowler. He was very unlucky in a ranking event semi-final against Stephen Hendry. You fluked the brown against him. Um, Hendry beat him, I think it was 5-4. The other thing I remember off-table was the fact that his manager was involved in a, a major altercation with Alex Higgins over in Dubai. That's not unusual, though, in fairness. I mean, no, most no, people were. No, but this was involved being in the pool. Yeah. And this guy was so annoyed with him, and he could handle himself as well, this guy was so annoyed with Higgins that basically he was ducking him under the pool and Higgins couldn't swim. And every time Higgins came up, he issued a particular expletive and this guy was ducking him back under the... Alex Higgins might feature... <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I think he's 1 to 20, actually. I think, yeah. last heard, I think he's working in, on an organic farm somewhere in, in the, in the okay. Midlands or something. That's what I heard. Danny Fowler? Yeah, I heard that, yeah. yeah. I don't, it could be rubbish, but that's what yeah. I heard. <laughs> Maybe he's listening. OK, Phil, you pick a number. 17. One of the legends of the game, Doug Mountjoy. There's lots of stories about Doug, aren't there? I another mean, what another we're player about, you lost to. <laughs> another, well, I mean, I, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, when I played him in the World Championship and I beat him by that record score, yeah. it sounds like I'm bigging myself up when saying that. I beat him 13-1, he was about to change his game uh, at that point. He was in the middle, Frank Callan had, had got onto him and uh, he was dreadful in that match, really poor. And then later on in the year, I played him again in the UK Championship. So it was the same year, but a different season. And you can imagine it's like, what are we talking, uh, April uh, through to November. Anyway, Doug's turned up. I thought, just beat him 31 in the world. You know, it's going to be all right. And he's still doing the, you know, he's still got the uh, Frank Callan new Q action going. Played marvellous against me. Beat me 9-4. And I thought, well, this is, how bad can you get? How can you beat someone so comfortably and lose so heavily? I remember opening the sort of, 
almost smashing the door down of, of the Guildhall trying to get out of the arena saying this is an all-time low and of course what happens goes on and wins mm. three consecutive centuries against Hendry no less in the yeah. final so uh, it wasn't me it was him <laughs> as they say <laughs> Neil doesn't remember this but I do at that world championship when Neil beat him with a session to spare at one point the cue ball was under the cushion and he actually topped it it was just mm. awful. It's almost a miss for air yeah, shot. Almost. Yeah, the, yeah, the technique had completely gone. And what Frank did was remarkable. He just completely reinvigorated Doug's game. And everyone thinks, well, he was 46. He won the UK Championship in 1988. Fantastic. And it was. But it was the way he played. Stephen didn't play badly in that final at all. As Neil said, uh, Doug made three consecutive centuries. He was amazing. And then he won the next world ranking event as yeah. well the Mercantile Credit Classic beating Wayne Jones in the final. So to win two in succession at the age of 46, one of the great achievements. Golden spell yeah. for him, wasn't yeah. it? And arguably, I mean, it's difficult to compare eras, but arguably one of the best players not to be world champion. He won the Masters, yeah. he won the UK, and of his time he was one of, the, one of the top players. And for a while he had the highest break ever in the world championship, 145, and he got to a final as well. Of course, he was the victim when Steve won the first of his six world titles. Absolutely, one of the best players yeah. never to win the world title, although he did win the World Amateur Championship. Mm. This isn't funny in a way, but I'll tell it, I'll tell it anyway. He, it, it might be funny in retrospect. He, he did some, of course, he was very ill. He had a lung removed. And, yes. and, but he did some coaching for World Snooker. And he was out in Malta one year at the, at the venue there. And every day he had to climb up about 40 steps to get to the top level where he was coaching. And, of course, it took a lot out of him because he only had one lung, couldn't breathe properly. It would take about five minutes to recover. And on the last day, someone very cheerily said to him, you know, there's a lift, Doug. I thought, why didn't you tell him? On, why didn't you tell him on the first day, the poor old soul? Anyway, that's Doug Mountjoy, still going strong. He practices still in uh, Mark Williams' club. Saw him at the World Seniors a couple of years ago, you know, and I we, we spoke about a couple of matches because he beat me uh, at the Crucible the year uh, after I beat Alex Higgins. Yeah. He beat me heavily, absolutely all over me. And I, I spoke about this at this World Seniors a couple of years back. He had no recollection of us ever playing. Well, if he's listening, then maybe but that'll jog his memory. Yeah, yeah, just because he did, he did not bothered about the yeah. past. OK, Neil, your turn. Two. Two. John Virgo. Now, the reason he's on the list is a lot of people know John Virgo, obviously, as a commentator. They're known from Big Break. But we shouldn't ignore his playing career. He was a UK champion. He was a great, great snooker player. I used to practice with him a lot. and I learned an awful lot from John. Uh, as you say, it's almost someone that you've forgotten about. Having ever played, it was all, all about uh, big break and all of that, and the funny waistcoats and what he is now. I think he's a really terrific summariser, actually. I really enjoy listening to John right now. But as a player, uh, break building, absolutely top class. Top class. Well, I've been fortunate to work with John on a very limited basis doing commentary. And it's anything when you work with people, you appreciate just how uh, knowledgeable mm. they are. And I really enjoyed the experience, and I think he's excellent, yeah. And I think the other thing about him is, even though you know, he's been doing the media side of the game for years. He's still genuinely enthusiastic, and that comes through in his commentary, which I love. Um, two things about him as a player. One, he was very right-eyed, wasn't he? You know, the master eye was right-eyed, and he was on, on that side of the on that side with the queue. The other was the fact that when he won the UK Championship, he did so despite being docked for Ames. That's right, against Terry in the yeah. final. Got the time wrong. Yeah, got, because they'd been, uh, there'd been all kinds of issues with a TV strike and things like that. And then the final began at a completely different time to all of the rest of the matches. And I think he was docked two frames, and yet he won the match regardless. I saw him play. Uh, the first time I actually went to the Crucible to watch, it was him against Gary Wilkinson. It was, they were last-minute tickets, I've got to be honest. Um, and it was excruciated. Four frames to the interval. Absolutely just terrible. Neither could pot a ball. And when they went to the interval... 
one of the lights, you know, the famous lights in the crucible popped. It was like a loud bang, and, and some wag in the crowd shouted, "John Verger's just shot himself because he'd, he'd lost the, <laughs> he'd lost the first four frames." That, that, that's what's, what was known as banter in those days. <laughs> just, uh, just one more thing yeah. about him. I, I have to say this because when I was like just starting to do a few exhibitions, it, it was always the thing that you had to do trick shots. And yeah. As a youngster, I was terrified of the thought of doing them. Uh, and one day, my dad said that John, John has offered to, to come into the club for a day and go through all of his trick shot repertoire and teach them all. And he did that for me. I thought it was really kind yeah. of did for nothing. You know, yeah. all the shots, uh, a few ways of setting them up. And I'll never forget that. Actually, his, his impressions of the players were funny. Like people bring them up now, almost like a sort of yeah. oh, those old days. They were actually really good. The other thing I remember about him, of course, a former chairman of the WPBSA, and it was at the time when we had that European Open in Deauville. Uh, which was a complete disaster, calamity. There was no one there. <laughs> yeah. Northern France in 1989. There wouldn't be anybody in northern France, maybe now, but back then, literally nobody in the arenas at all. And I'm doing this uh, piece, I think it was to the Daily Express, and I was putting it through to copy at the time because there was no email back then. And I'm doing this really critical piece about why did they bring the tournament here. I put the phone down on, t- on the copy. Saying, OK, thanks, great, cheers. Put the phone down, look around, there's John listening to every word I've said. I've been slagging <laughs> off his regime. <laughs> and yet they still allow you into venues. And at that same tournament, he played Eddie Charlton. And Eddie played excruciatingly slowly. Unusually for him. Yeah, yeah. and in the last frame, he cleared up. And it was one of those where he cleared up into one particular side of the table. So it's blue into the left middle pink and black into the other the left top pocket and when he's on the blue and Virgo knows he's going to lose he just walks out so any parts of the balls to win turns around to shake his hand and he wasn't there yeah. OK uh, Phil it's your turn Hello, lads. Hi Alan we're recording a podcast but feel free to join in no, we are. No, seriously. We're just talking about players. In fact, you're on this list, actually. Oh, but anyway, go. Oh, he's on the list. Yeah, yeah. Pick a number. Okay, I'll now say number seven. Uh, Gary Wilkinson. I'll just explain to Alan what we're doing. Alan McManus joins us, by the way. Hey, basically, guys. we've written down, I've written down a list of players, past and present, and we're literally just telling stories about them. Oh, OK. So, well, <laughs> well, Gary Wilkinson, the thing I remember now, and uh, that, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was, that it was when he played Steve Davis in the UK Championship. Did he beat... Did he beat Jimmy White nine nil. Yep. First of all. Yeah. And he had Davis beaten, um, and it got down to the pink and black. T- correct me if I'm wrong. And it, Steve needed a snooker. And, and Gary, but, but Gary, Gary didn't, didn't know. Yeah. I've never known that before. He was about fourteen or fifteen <laughs> in front, and he played the pink at long range, really, really thin to play the safety shot when he didn't need to do it, and he missed it. Um, and then, of course, he lost the match. And apparently, after the match, he tells the story that he was asked to sign all the programmes, still oblivious to the fact that, that Steve needed a snooker in the first place, and he, he'd given away this foul for no obvious reason. And he threw all the programmes on the floor. He couldn't believe it. He didn't know. Yeah, he, he was told, and it was confirmed to him at the press conference, and he just went ashen. It was terrible, terrible. I mean, he genuinely thought he needed to hit that pink thin. I actually remember the shot, the, the, the pink. I'm sure the pink was on the bulk cushion. It was. It was in the black end, yes. and he's missed it, and then... And I'll get done with it, it? Yes. The thing with Wilkinson, I mean, he won the world match play, mm. which is a very good tournament to win at the time. Came close to winning the British Open. He was 6 3 up on Stephen Hendry in the final. Uh, eventually lost 10 9. He was a very, very tough match player. Towards the end of his career, I think he became sort of full of indecision and consequently he became quite slow. 
but a really formidable player who was in the not just in the top 16 but in the top 8 and if you can get there in the area he was playing you've got to be able to play the game very very well but you've got the best Gary Wilkinson well you say he became quite slow I was is this Jason Ferguson <laughs> yes yeah, you're not kidding I know it's coming I know it's coming because this was the final qualifier for the World Championship uh, years ago I'd only just started out and was being sort of you know thought I should actually attend and not sort of leave early like everyone else did little knowing that they started the final session at 6 o'clock it was still going at 1 o'clock in the morning Bruce Beckett, who was then the Will Snooker press officer, went in to have a look because the frame, the last frame, seemed to be going a long time. And he's come out after about twenty minutes. He said, "This ain't going anywhere. There's five reds on the top cushion. Wow. They're just playing off them." It lasted about, I think, about eighty minutes. The last frame finished about twenty to two in the morning. It's pretty evil, wasn't it? And I waited for the quotes. Uh, there were no quotes, obviously. He, <laughs> I said to Gary, "Yeah, well, you must be really happy you qualified." And he just, and I said, "But it took a long time, didn't it?" He said, "Well, it doesn't matter how you get there." And that was it. Got on his car, drove home. <laughs> but Dave wasn't the only spectator. Oh no, there was yeah, there was a well. There was, I think he was basically a tramp. I mean, let's, let's not let's not be coy. Cool. Basically, a tramp coming wow. to shelter from the the weather outside, and uh, in, eventually he left. He, got, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was eight each. He went home. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was yeah, that was that was the audience. Okay, well, Alan, you, you choose a number one, one to twenty. Uh, Seventeen. We've had that. You weren't here for that. Okay, eleven. Uh, eleven is Tony Drago. Well, of course. Oh, well, actually, of course. In recent times, Alan, you've you sort of featured slightly in the Tony Drago story. Yeah, yeah I, mean, what, I think we've, we've all got stories with a tornado in it. Um, the one at, uh, at, at Sheffield, in the, I think it was a German qualifier or something, and obviously it was four each, and he, and he, he, he thought was, he conceded basically when he could still win. Yeah. And he's left me the blue, which is. And he's realised he's going to be fined because that's the rule, isn't it? Well, he actually didn't realise he right. was going to be fined. The referee kind of said to him, and then Tony sort of, I thought... <laughs> not what you do, is it? Oh, <laughs> all right, OK, well, now can you maybe retract the, the you know... But, look, the, the, the point of it was at the time, if a guy, if you're playing out there and a guy shakes your hand, gets, my cue's mentally and, and physically in my cue case. Yeah, it's not com- It's yeah. not coming back out. And um, But, you know, I, obviously... The, We've all seen the footage of Tony on Well, he put, if you haven't seen it, he punched himself in the face. Yeah, and that's what he did. Good, good yeah. punch yeah. as well. It was a good punch. <laughs> um, but look, the, the funny thing about it was I was now driving back home up the A66 and uh, I got my phone went and uh, it was Tony. Hmm. He said, oh, Alan, Alan, listen, I'm really sorry about what happened and da 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 But he said, he said, the thing is, we should know better. <laughs> so what do you mean we? So, like, so, but that's just Tony, and you know, it was a, it was a good story. I think it's fair to say if you get on a plane, you don't want to see Tony sit down next to you because he's a very no. nervous flyer. Yeah, he's pretty terrified <laughs> of that, isn't he? And the other thing about Tony, and recently when he found out that uh, Jimmy White gives him a ring quite a lot, he finds him mm-hmm. almost every day at the World Championships when I was uh, with you guys at Eurosport. Um, Jimmy phones Tony, and he's the, and if you listen, Tony, it's, it's all in good fun. He, you know, he, he enjoys his food. There's no getting away from that. He really loves his food. He's either eating or watching the snooker. You can be certain of one thing: Tony will be watching the match. And Jimmy says, "Hey, what do you think the match is going?" Oh, let me tell you, Jimmy. I think this, that, and the other. He's never anywhere else but watching or having his dinner. You know, and um, I really, I'm, I really miss him this year. Yeah. Actually, not on the tour. Didn't make it through Q yeah. School, and it's a real shame. I hope he gets back. Mm. He was a real hothead. I mean, even late in his career. I remember the World Seniors down in Portsmouth. Yeah, He'd right. lost, I, I think, that. to uh, Tony Chapel. And, uh, I think it might have been Dave It, it was Dave Harold. It was Dave Harold, that's right. He'd lost the match to Dave Harold. Come upstairs, and the guy he's with, all he said to him was, 
bad luck. <laughs> not unleashed, the language. <laughs> not unleashed a tirade <laughs> that went on for about five minutes. <laughs> totally unwarranted. What I will say about Drago, though, I don't think there's ever been a player whose best and whose worst is so far apart. At his best, he was unstoppable. Brilliant player. He played John uh, Parrott in the British Open at Derby at the Assembly Rooms. I think it was in the last 16 and he won 5-1 and no one would have beaten him that night I was actually in the arena it was impossible to beat him the way he played you couldn't leave him safe he knocked everything in and he played good safety himself and you think well he could go on and win this and the next round no good at all but at his best he was simply inspirational OK Neil number four number four is Dave Harold, who we've just mentioned Dave Harold, the Stoke I mean, Potter yeah well I mean it, I, I I remember playing him in the UK Championship one year, um, and Jan Verhas was quite early in Jan's refereeing career, I think, and the misrule was quite uh, in its infancy as well. And uh, I was called a miss, which was actually absolutely the correct decision, but I was not quite. Uh, and, and a miss where I, I was trying to hit a reds, and I hit the black on the way through, and the reds went all over the table. Uh, of course, Dave, Dave and, and is trying to get the balls replaced and all that, and, and Jan said to me, uh, Neil, would you like to help me? I said, listen, you call them this, you put them back, I'm going to sit there. And Dave just looked at me, and uh, if I was quite, and I still speak with Jan about it, but Dave was that kind of character. I found him quite frustrated in the play. Mm. I played him in the World Championship the last time I got to the Crucible. As a qualifier, I thought, this is a good draw, and Dave played brilliantly against me. He's a very good player, one of the toughest guys yeah. to beat. Yeah. I never got to know him very well off the table, actually. But um, I think you know. I think he. I think he enjoyed a drink. He's a good lad, and another guy that's missed from the tour. Yeah. Strangely enough, uh, the, the, the history that I've got with Dave Farrell goes back a long way, and and the, the, what I'm going to say about it as a match I played him, it was actually to turn professional. It was either it was best of nine at Blackpool, summer of ninety, and the winner turned pro and the loser went home, and that was basically it. That just obviously doesn't happen these days. Um, and, and uh, yeah, I, I was a lucky one to come through, but uh, yeah, it was it was good days. I remember him well. Good Got to a final, obviously, of the Grand Prix, losing to John Higgins. He won a ranking event as well as a 500 to one outside of the old Asian Open in Bangkok. Uh, beat Darren Morgan in the final, and he played brilliant. Didn't and he? he played absolutely superbly throughout that tournament. The conditions weren't the best. I thought because he not got a great amount of power because of his Q action, he would really suffer there, but he didn't. He got stuck in and he beat some very, very good players, ended up uh, winning the title. And uh, it's a statistic we always come out with, a story we always come out with, but his brother had a, a tenner on him at 500 to 1. Oh, How about that? He was also the opponent when Stephen Hendry broke his arm at the Crucible. He, the day was his opponent. Now, you'd imagine hearing that news... He'd be jumping for joy, but of course, he, I think he absolutely hammered him, didn't he? <laughs> well, Stephen was 7-1 up overnight, yeah. and I was very fortunate, and I thank him to this day. Uh, a member <laughs> of Stephen's team actually rang me and told me he'd broke his arm, so I actually broke the story on Radio 5, and I'm really worried for Stephen, because you don't want to see anybody lose in the World Championship under those circumstances, and he came back out and he played so gingerly in the first frame of the day lost it and you think oh no you know this is going to be a nightmare and then the next frame he had a, a big century and ended up winning 13-2 that's how good he was Hendry yeah but, but Dave was really happy with that <laughs> um, go on Phil uh, I'll go for number one Fred Davis well a legend I mean one of the, the all time greats so where would we start with Fred well I've got really only one story quickly with Fred I was I think I was present in his last match as a professional I might have been it was at the Norbreck and, and um, I think it was a guy from Leeds Chris Cookson who you, you, you'll obviously yeah. remember 
You're from Preston. Uh, sorry, Preston. Um, Get it right, Alan. Yeah, Chris, I think beat him ten one, and Fred came out into the from the auditorium. <coughs> that he came out into the practice area. There was about six practice tables, and there was probably half a dozen guys practicing, and, and maybe fifty guys scattered around the room. It was a big room, and everyone sort of stopped and mm. sort of the applause, and you know, so he was a grand old man of the game, wasn't yeah. he? Never used to practice, apparently. Uh, so I'm told in the last few years, he just used to play uh, matches. He had the same cue all his career, also. Yep. Uh, which, well, I, as I remember it, towards the end of his career, it looked like it, it, he'd had it all his career. It looked like a really, really old cue. But he was you know, one of the last of that generation, wasn't he? He was a great snooker player. A great player. I watched him in the qualifiers towards the end of his, his playing career as well. And um, in amongst them, he was still really, really good. But at long range, of course, he'd lost it by now. Well, when Alan got to the semi-final of the World Championship this year, I mean, a phenomenal achievement. 45, weren't you, at the time, obviously. Now everyone's saying, how can a 45-year-old get to the semi-final of the World Championship? Well, in 1978, Fred was 64 yeah. when he got to the semi-final. Yeah. And I absolutely, to this day, will say he should have got to the final. He should have beaten Perry Manns. He missed, missed that pink. You know, he could have easily got to the final. And that... You can't quite comprehend yeah, it that. Been, it would have been quite something. Yeah. There's footage on YouTube of, I think it's the year after, so it was 79, he makes a century at the Crucible, and at the end, the referee applauds. That's right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just so impressed. He yeah. thought he would have been 65. Yes, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And yeah. also billiards, when he was a world billiards champion. Uh, just an amazing person. Mm. When but in the shadow of his brother, you can't get away from that. Obviously, Joe Davis was the first world champion, 15 times world champion. I wasn't alive in 1946. Right, OK. Just I, wa- clear that up. I wasn't there. I wasn't there. <laughs> But, you know, Fred was getting closer and closer and closer to Joe. Mm. And I think Joe retired because he was, fr- not frightened, but he didn't want to lose his unbeaten record as world champion. And I think Fred was the reason he retired from the world championship. Yeah. Mm. OK. Um, Alan, would you like to choose a number? Um, nine. Number nine. <laughs> well, th- this person's on this list for one reason only. Maureen McCarthy, Phil. Off you go. <laughs> OK. Ma- Maureen McCarthy... <laughs> Nobody knew who she was. Even the w- members of the um, women's circuit didn't know who she was. She appeared on the list for the Benson and Hedges Championship, which was the satellite tournament. The winner of it got into the Benson and Hedges Masters, and it was played at various locations. Obviously, up in Scotland, uh, I remember famously, and <coughs> then it moved down to, to Malvern. And she was on the, on the list, and we're thinking, who on earth is she? You know, is she some kind of amazing player who's never bothered to enter a women's tournament because she's too good for them, you know. She's going to blitz the men. What kind of player is she? It turned out she wasn't. Turned out she wasn't. <laughs> she played um, a gentleman who, who we all know very well, Mike Dunn, and I think she scored two points in the whole match, yeah. which is the lowest ever score in a, in a best of nine. I think Mark King holds the record for the lowest ever points scored in a televised best of nine against John Higgins, 11. But she scored two points. Well, she did, and she, she, she earned herself, probably didn't know this, but she earned herself a rather, a rather clever nickname because uh, one of the tournament officials, because he, he had the sheet, the marker sheet, and it was like zero, zero, one, zero, and her nickname was Binary. <laughs> 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 Which is kind of something, I don't know. But then, didn't she, I think then she, she moved to Malvern, where the tournament was held, to practice for the next year. That's right, yeah. I think it was at the Willie Thorne... Took it seriously. Willie Thorne Snooker Centre. taking things very seriously. Yeah, and she actually moved to Malvern to practice, but she didn't play the following year for some reason. No, well, I don't know. Anyway, yeah. uh, Two points in a match, that that takes some beating. She's in the record books. Um, Neil? 13. 13 is Darren Morgan. But, of course, he he was beaten by Dave Harold in that uh, that final that you mentioned. He was. Darren Morgan is is another one because he 
he was always saying he was going to retire, more so than even Ronnie, and, you know, said that quite a lot in recent years, and other players. Almost every tournament Darren played, uh, he said, oh, I'm, this is my last one. You know, he, just after he lost by some miracle, you know, maybe that's not coincidental. This is, this is, I'm finishing playing. Shook hands with me, and, you know, great to see you. Oh, this is my career over. And, of course, not only would he appear at the, at the next tournament, and as if it never happened, and at the end of it, when he lost, if he lost, he'd say, this is my last tournament for sure. Of course, now he still plays mm. when he doesn't have to. It's been and in the semi-final, great, we're yeah, thinking of it. He's one of the sort of like leading seniors players going. So, um, basically, he, he, he doesn't always mean everything he says. We always, I think all of us have felt like we want to pack it in when we lose. But Darren used to go to the point of shaking hands and saying his goodbyes yeah. and then reappearing. So that's what I think about Darren. Great character. Oh, great yeah. character. There was one a couple of years ago, I think, from Darren that you, you guys might know some about. Probably you, you do, Phil. Um, it was at one of the European senior over forties event amateur thing, and I think he was with was it is it Phil Williams or what, yes. one of the Welsh guys, and they were rooming, and I think Phil Williams either beat him in the semi final or the final, and they got back to the room and he said, and Darren turned round and said, "Thanks very much, <laughs> you've just ruined my Christmas." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So they didn't speak a lot for yes. the rest of yeah. the stay, but uh, that, that's Darren. But they're very competitive, and, and I still miss him on the circuit. Great fun to be around. He asked me once, he was doing some commentary when he started out, what should I do in the commentary box? I said, Darren, just be yourself and say, his, say it as it is. And when he does commentate, that's, that's what he does, and I, that's why I like to, to hear him. You know, he, he's got these opinions, whether they're right or wrong, so what? He's got his opinions and he'll say them, and I respect him for that. The, the best Darren Morgan story for me, he always thought that he wasn't given the respect that he was due. He got that in his head. And on one occasion... For the first time, he got into the world's top eight, and he was absolutely over the moon. And the first tournament of the year was Dubai, and we went to the Al Nazar Stadium. He used to go over that big bridge across yeah. the across the creek and yeah. turn right into the car park there. And he, this is it now. They can't deny me now. I'm in the top eight. All this kind of stuff. We turned up in this Al Nazar Stadium for this Dubai Classic, and there's this massive poster along the along the length of the venue, the Magnificent Seven, and he was the one who was missed out. <laughs> <laughs> he was steam good But also, he won the Irish Masters, didn't he? He won the Irish Masters. I think he then got to the final the year after, and then they never asked him back again. That was <laughs> absolutely disgraceful. He won it one year, he lost 9-8 on the black oh, the wow. next year, and he was never invited back. Mm. And also, he did win quite a few tournaments over the years that were discontinued. Yes, he'll he, tell you all about them if you yeah, see him yeah. down. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. We'll do one more, because I know you, you gentlemen have got to go and work earn a proper living uh, Alan see if you can pick yourself uh, five you have done but, oh. I, but I, don't, I don't think we should talk about you as you're here because uh, that's a bit embarrassing uh, um, pick another number ten number ten well one of the one of the all time greats Terry Griffiths well it could take a long time to speak about the Griff no I mean I've known him a long time since um, my dad played him actually um in the English Amateur Championships uh, and beat him my dad did actually mm. yeah, and this is going back to the, I think the mid 70s uh, and I it became apparent what a great player he was. He was beating Patsy Fagan at the time, and no one used to beat Patsy in London. Um, but he was playing in the English Amateur Championship as a Welshman, which a few people found a bit strange. But that was kind of that's the way that that it was. Um, I've known him ever since, and there's, there was too many stories to tell. But he's t- truly one of the legends of the game for me. Do anything for you, and he, you know, he is kind of Mr. Snooker for me. Uh, there was a couple of ones for me actually when I first turned pro, and then recently. Um, my, my debut at the Crucible, Terry beat me. I think it was 13, 11 or 12 anyway, and I was pretty devastated. I, I can normally let go of a defeat, but I was crying in the dressing room after the match, only really because the guy I was with started bubbling, so I, I blame him. But then, funny enough, this year, when, when Ding hammered me at the Crucible, 
Griff actually came in the dressing room and he sort of gave us a hug. And, and you know, the way he does, he's like that. He's that kind of guy. He gets emotional. And I'm not attached to Terry in any way. You know, he just is a, he's a good guy. And he kind of gave us a hug. And he kind of had a bit of a tear in his eye. And I, funny enough, almost had a bit of a tear dripping myself just because of the way it, it was quite emotional. And, and he's that kind of guy. And so it was funny from the start of my career at the Crucible to literally the, the, maybe the end of it. Um, Terry was there and, and it, was, it was a nice memory to, yeah. to have, you know. Sure. Well, I'm sitting around the table with three of the people I respect a lot in the game and Terry's in that group as well. You know, how can you not like the guy? He's just such a genuinely warm individual. And when you're around him, he's funny. Extremely dry sense of humour. Yeah. yeah, but he's also very, very caring, as Alan's just mm. said. And he's not selfish in any way. He's actually not like a really good world champion. He's not... He's not self-absorbed at all, is he? You know, he's, he's, he's very caring about other people, so that I love about him. But the other thing you've got to say is when he won that championship in 79, he played fantastically. The amount of frames he won from well behind with lovely clearances, it was one of the great performances for me. And when you think that in his previous professional match before that championship, it was in the UK qualifiers, and he'd lost it 9-8 to Rex Williams after being 8-2 up, and then he goes to the Crucible and does that, Astonishing. Mm, yeah. Yes, and also now, just finally, now he's become a coach. There are certain people who have become attached to players in various capacities down the years who, let's let's face it, quite like the limelight and quite like to sort of be mentioned and so on. He's the opposite. He stays in the background because, of course, he's got nothing to prove. He's done it all himself. Mm. So I have every respect for him as well. Thank you to you all for your comments. Just, just, just yeah. one more. Sorry, on, actually, yeah. but with Terry, I, I was fortunate enough. We're talking about, about him being a nice guy, a caring guy, and he is. Um, I had been pro about two or three years and he actually invited me down he stayed in Flanethley at the time and um, invited me down to the house and I stayed overnight with him uh, two or three nights done a little exhibition in the matchroom club and it, 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 one of these big fancy houses with the, 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 the fountain and the driveway <laughs> and it was like a roundabout and all that sort of stuff it was funny in the morning I was in like it was like literally a guest room it was like Southport branch <laughs> so the phone's gone I've picked up the phone that's at the side of the bed so I've, it was a bit like a big hotel room fancy the phone's going I picked up and it was Terry he was in the kitchen he said Bre- breakfast is ready and t- you know it was a big massive house and it, and it, but it was fantastic and actually the snooker room he had on the end of the house I don't know if any of you guys ever got the chance to we, be we there. weren't obviously as no. close to him as you no, but no, no. I thought I knew him really well <laughs> yeah. it turns out I was never invited to no. that house nothing like that happened yeah. the snooker room attached to the side of the house is maybe the nicest snooker room I've ever seen in my life it was Chesterfield suite big mahogany bar gantry table immaculate and it was the table that he beat Jimmy in the semis of 89 the semi-final table at the Crucible and it was there was a there was a white on the end of the table where you normally see the Riley or BCE sign there was just a white piece of paper and it was signed by Jimmy White and so that he, he, he held Jimmy in great esteem didn't he and, yes. you know, so that was a personal thing for him. and that's the other thing we've got to remember about Terry didn't just win the world championship he won the majors yeah Yeah. ok well this has been a little bit like an episode of Parkinson a very niche one it's got to be said but uh, thank you all and uh, we'll see you next time Sports Social Podcast Network